minds are so powerful that what we focus on reverberates through every aspect of our lives. So why not see what happens when we put our attention on all the good things people are doing? Join me for the good with Teresa G as we start a ripple effect by focusing on all the greatness in the world. Dr. Christiane Northrup is a visionary pioneer and a leading authority in the field of women's health and wellness, which includes the unity of mind, body, emotions, and spirit. Internationally known for her empowering approach to women's health and wellness, Dr. Northrup teaches women how to thrive at every stage of life. Dr. Northrup knows that the key to vibrant health on all levels is within us, our inner wisdom. She says, when we find the connection between our thoughts, beliefs, physical health, and life circumstances, we find that we are in the driver's seat of our lives and can make profound changes. Nothing is more exhilarating or empowering. Yay! Welcome, Dr. Northrup. Oh my goodness. I, yeah, I can't boy. tell you how super excited I am uh, to have you here because you're on like my, my wish list of top 10 people that I want to interview. I love it. I love it. That's perfect. All right. Good to be here. Let's start way back when, what inspired you to become an OBGYN? I saw a birth when I was in med school and I I suddenly was overcome with two things, absolute joy and absolute sorrow. It was as it was the most like pain-filled joy, joy-filled pain, and I nearly fell to the floor from being so moved by it. And the the nurse was yelling at the med student who had let go of the umbilical cord with the clamp, so that thing spraying around the room like a mini fire hose. And I'm thinking, <laughs> and I'm thinking, what is wrong with you? To the nurse, what is wrong with you? This is like the most beautiful thing. I've ever witnessed. It's holy. It's sacred. And you're here yelling at a med student. And I remember thinking there is no place in this room for anyone who doesn't understand how sacred this is. Now, at the time, and this is new, this isn't in any of my books at all. At the time, what I didn't know was that When I was about five, my mother lost a baby who I had named, and uh, the pregnancy was fraught with viral pneumonia. They gave my mother streptomycin, an antibiotic. She was on every single day for that pregnancy because it was in the era of antibiotics as the magic bullet for everything, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And we went to Florida to try to cure her pneumonia and all of that. Um, the baby was born. I was five. She wouldn't eat. Uh, her name was Bonnie Laurie. She looked a lot like me in the one picture that we have. And she died at the age of six months in a pool of her own vomit in the, uh, in the neonatal nursery. They didn't have neonatal intensive care units then. And my mother couldn't hold her. She could only look through a little window because Aww. hospitals then as now were, uh, fortresses against germs. And as a little intuitive child, I abandoned myself to try to heal my mother. 
And that's the story of my women's health career. It always was and always has been at its heart. Now, not the big soul picture, but the, the you know, the individual life path we take in, in order to um, play out our soul's purpose. So I was really just spending my life trying to heal my little five-year-old self and my mother. <laughs> That's the honest mm. to God truth. That's quite a weight to carry at five. Uh, it's, it's way too big. It's way too big. But, you know, I've been carrying it for lifetimes. And this is the lifetime when I finally have <laughs> dropped the burden. And, uh, you know, I finally realized all of that. But it certainly led to... Uh, a career that's helped a lot of people as, and I think that that's what we're all doing in some way. We're all just trying to heal ourselves and to bring some light into the part of, of darkness, the part of the individual and collective darkness that we came to enlighten, enlighten. So, that's how it all started. And I know that my response to that birth, that, uh, you know, wanting to fall to the floor weeping, uh, was really that unhealed part of myself. And then through my career, I eventually healed it. I had that same feeling when I was at a Ann Wilson Schaaf living in process seminar in, uh, in the early nineties. And, uh, she took us through a deep process. We were we were doing an intervention on one of my partners who was an alcoholic. And, you know, the three parts of an intervention are one, you tell the person how much you love them. Two, you tell them what their addiction is doing to you. And then three, you tell them what the consequences are if they continue the behavior. Well, I only got through the first part, which was to tell this individual how moved I was that she met me in the parking lot of the medical center when I was in labor with my second daughter and uh, parked my car. The getting any support or love from a woman, especially a colleague, was so rare that it just moved me to tears. And I hit those that mat and I wailed for an hour. I was in touch with the the pain of all women, not just mine, not just my mother's, but all women. I was in that same place. And then uh, I knew that I came uh, this time around to bring joy to that pain of all women. That seems to be your mission is to help women process through their pain that is holding them back, either physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly it. And of course, you cannot help someone through their pain until you transform your own. Mm -hmm. And then when you transform your own, you have a very different point of attraction. And so, you know, at this point, I don't want to go backward into wallowing in that pain with anybody, but I sure know how to throw a rope down into that hole. They can either climb up the rope or not their choice. <laughs> mm, I love that. And I personally feel like a lot of your shows, a lot of your blogs, a lot of your segments have been ropes for me in certain times in my life. I'll turn you on and it's often, you know, divine intervention in a way because you'll be talking about something that is just perfect 
for what I'm going through. And often I'll walk away uplifted and feeling more of a connection uh, to my spirit, which is so, so healing overall. And I just have to applaud you for that by you using all these different tools to offer the ropes to people all over the world. Oh, thank you. You know, that's been the biggest compliment ever for me, for my work. And that is like when someone would read Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom, or you've now extended that to if you hear me, you know, with a podcast, that it helps you remember something about you that you always knew, but rarely had heard a doctor articulate it. And so I see that as my role, as my mission but I'm not doing it on purpose, actually. It just kind of is, is there. And, and so therefore, you know, like the, the latest book, Dodging Energy Vampires, or the, or the Netflix show, Wild Wild Country, about Rajneesh, I'm so aware now of how many energy vampires we have had here on Earth as the gurus to whom we have given our power. And they're not sourced through God, through their higher power, their source through the energy of those of us who have given them our power. And I, I'm so grateful to finally know that, to finally see that, to finally stop giving my, my power to someone else who's a human, as my colleague said years ago, when she started to get a handle on her alcoholism, she said, I seem to make everything the higher power except what actually is. <laughs> yes, that, that, and we all have done that. We've all done that. I think we can all relate to that. Oh my God, haven't we? Oh my God, haven't we? It's just like, holy cow. And so many times, you know, the people that we, that we worship, that we give all of our energy to, they're not reliable people. They're, they're not good people, but they, they're so self-assured, often so charismatic, so intelligent, so attractive that we make them God in our lives, whether it's a doctor or it's a movie star or if it's a spiritual guru or someone of that nature. I mean, I'm loving where we are right now in the collective. Uh, you know, after the Me Too movement, where all the heads are rolling of all mm-hmm. of these people who have been, I mean, the latest that I read in the New York Times was the Diocese of Pennsylvania, uh, who that has come out uh, about, oh, I don't know, hundreds of priests who've been sexually abusing young people, and there were thousands of them, you know, so, so finally, we are waking up to the forces of darkness that have been keeping people down for centuries. This isn't new stuff with Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein. It's actually a collective shift in consciousness. This never could have happened until now. I mean, back in the 80s, when I was seeing what I was seeing and seeing why women had the distress in their pelvic organs and their breasts and so on, you know, my colleagues all said to me, oh, you're seeing the crazy women. We only see normal women. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? That, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and so when, when the Harvey thing hit in October, 
I was turning backflips. Now, I don't even read mainstream news, but man, those investigative reports and what those two women did, and uh, also Mia Farrow's son, to do the investigative reporting to finally get the goods on these people. But, you know, even then, the New York Times would not have touched that two years ago. They wouldn't have touched it because mm. that's been, you know, th these people are so good at manipulating and pulling the wool off over your eyes. But now there's this sort of collective rise in self-trust and in saying your truth. And for the first time since I've been alive on, on the planet this time, people are actually believing women and children and the soft, tender heart of men who've also been abused. It's a really interesting time that we're living in because it, it does seem that things are coming out in the open versus we've had so many, you know, lifetimes and lifetimes of keeping things under wraps and in the dark closet. And it seems as things come out in the open, we're being able to clear uh, levels of pain and decades and centuries of pain and, and find healing in that. Yes, that's what I love about this. So if you were to just look at, MSNBC, Fox News, New York Times, Washington Post, the usual sources of what we call reliable information, you would not get the import of what's actually happening because they are the old order. Mm -hmm. And they and every one of those organizations has a an agent of darkness trying to keep people afraid and angry. And dark forces feed on your fear and your anger. And so notice when you read a certain thing, does this, well, it, you know, it, it sort of goes back to Gerald Jampolsky's two questions. You, you either live in love or you live in fear. Mm -hmm. But, but, and now here's the key part. Here's the key part. Living in love does not mean that you don't know what's going on. And I think that this is, this is the key because so many women you know, have been um, the, the sort of Pollyanna, oh, it's all good and everything fine is fine or he means well or my favorite. He's acting the way he is or she because of something that happened in childhood. In other words, making excuses for bad behavior with the mistaken belief that only hurt people hurt people. That's, um, you know, the, the work of Dr. George Simon, who wrote In Sheep's Clothing. And I think this was like the, the sort of final upstream revelation. People said to me, well, your latest book is certainly a departure. And I thought, oh, no, 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 it is not a departure. It is as far upstream as I think I could possibly go with healthcare. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm doing a podcast after this one with Sarah Avant Stover, and this wonderful yoga teacher eating perfectly, uh, doing yoga, all of that, and getting sicker and sicker and sicker. Why? Because yes. she's in, in relationship with an energy vampire, in her case, a sociopath. And I just uh, posted that link over on my Facebook page because it's a perfect example of how the best of us are targeted by these uh, energy vampires. In fact, I think... They're attracted to the best of us. Well, you know? they are because our light, because our light. And that's, that's what we're doing on this planet. This is a planet of dark and light. It's contrast. 
Mm-hmm. So the brighter your light, the darker the darkness that's going to be attracted to you. So at this point, that darkness doesn't scare me anymore. You know, like the, the people like uh, Rajneesh or the people, you know, we could name a lot of them, but it doesn't scare me. I know that they're pulling the strings behind the, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the, the, the screen, the Wizard of Oz. But I don't give them power anymore because I know that the light is winning the light is winning, and so the darkness is pulling out all the stops. It's trying to make you think that the world is worse than it's ever been. And what is everyone doing? They're focusing on freaking Donald Trump. Just don't pay attention. Right. And that's just, you know, I always say smoke and mirrors. Smoke that's and mirrors, it. folks. But honestly, that's, you know, the mission of this podcast is that, yes, we're focusing on everything that's going wrong really there's so much going right. There is so much going right. Oh, it's so exciting. There's so much going right. People are waking up all over the place, all over the place. So the collective is changing. Now you probably know that uh, December 21st, 2012 was, remember we had the whole thing about that's the end of the Mayan calendar. Life Mm -hmm. as we know it is going to end. And then, and then everyone woke up on December 22nd, 2012. And oh, it was like Y2K. The world right. is still here, right? Yes. And so what that meant, and uh, you know, this is the work of um, uh, Cryon, channeled by Lee Carroll, and also Greg Braden. All that meant was the ancient prophecies from so many indigenous cultures. If we make it past 2012, without annihilating ourselves yet again, we will be in the new world. And that's where we are. The turning of the ages, Daniel Giamario calls it. But everything, you know, it's darkest before dawn. At 4 a.m., by the way, is the darkest period of the 24-hour cycle. And that's the time when most women actually start their menstrual cycles. They start their periods right at the darkest, darkest time. So be afraid. We can't be afraid of the dark. But on the other hand, you can't let it manipulate you. And that's, that's so, for me personally, that's exciting. I, cause I finally see it. I was having dinner with some Washington DC intellectuals uh, over the weekend. Cause you know, a lot of them come to Maine in the summer and I had asked them because I didn't want the topic to get into medical care because they all, you know, take mm. Lipitor and do all the things mm-hmm. that you're told to do that I never do. Mm-hmm. So I asked to start the dinner party off like, okay, so what's your favorite movie? And then they started to pan the shape of water. And I said, I loved the shape of water. I loved it. And this guy, the intellectual looks at me and he goes, how can a woman of your intelligence like a movie like that? And I looked at him because, because before I was married, the man I was married to caught me reading a book on angels called Natives of Eternity when I'm in medical school. And he says, how can a woman of your intelligence believe in this kind of thing? Now, the difference was back then, I thought I could change him with my goodness and my angelic qualities. Now I know that's not possible unless he's willing. And so this time when the guy said that, 
I just raised my hand. I said, I love all of that stuff. I love Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. I, lo- I am a hopeless romantic, a hopeful romantic, and this is what I love. And for the first time in my life, I just didn't care that I don't fit into that hyper-intellectual, left-brain-dominant place where so many people live. Mm, that's inspiring because I do notice when I'm out at parties and stuff, and if I cross a certain line, <laughs> you yep. can just see people switch. Like, yep. you know, that it's like, oh, really? All right. Well, you know, don't yeah. know what to say to that. But... No, they don't. They don't know what to say to that. And so now with great delight, I see if I can get into a dance with them. Or if you can't, then I just move on to the next thing because I can't, I really, I can't go down to their level anymore and try to use, well, in my case, it would be scientific studies, op-ed pieces from the New York Times, all this sort of sophisticated mumbo jumbo, East Coast intelligentsia stuff. Mm -hmm. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything. Mm Mm-hmm. It's mental masturbation, but you, you know, it's like you keep doing it, but you never get a baby. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's absolutely true. You just never, and you never get that feeling, you know, that, that warm heart connection feeling while you're doing it. That's right. So speaking of angels, you talk about how you, you became connected to divine intuition and tools and started recognizing angels at a really young age. And what was that experience? Did you see angels when you were littler? Or? No, I don't see anything. <laughs> I don't see anything. I don't really feel anything. I just sort of know it. it this is such an interesting topic, but let me give you the story because it, it really is a very cool story. So I'm like 12, 11 or 12, and I go to babysit for this woman's adult daughter and her children who were visiting. And I see on the table in the living room uh, a cardboard box that's got a book in it, obviously. It's been mailed. And it says, Natives of Eternity. That's right on the box. And I opened the mail. I don't do that. I mean, I was this quintessential valedictorian in a small high school good girl. I don't open people's mail. So out comes the book, Natives of Eternity by Flower Newhouse, who was a Christian mystic in Escondido, California, where the Christ Word ministry was, I think still is. And it gave pictures of the divas of air and fire and water, the divas of the elements, the divas of flowers, the angels of birth, the angels of death, the angels that are around when you make your transition. And uh, Flower Newhouse was a Christian minister, but the pictures had been drawn by a woman who saw the angels. And I was transfixed by this. I was so excited. It was like, oh man, what I've always believed to be true is in fact true. I'm not making this up. It uh, it struck a chord in me that was so deep. And I went home and I told my mother about it. And then she called Gretchen Carroll, the woman whose daughter I was babysitting her kids. And they sent me the book. And then Gretchen and I, she was probably in her seventies at the time, we began to get together 
for brunches that she would make. And the two of us would sit there and we would talk about angels because she went to the Christ word ministry uh, regularly. And so this lasted throughout college. When I was home, I would have brunch with Gretchen and we would talk about angels and, and all of this stuff. So it was such a gift. And also you see my mother was excommunicated from the Catholic church at the age of 13 in 1935, when she was wrongly accused of painting the Blessed Mother's toenails on oh, the gosh. altar, which she, <laughs> which she hadn't done. So, but I mean, think about this legacy, right? Wow. Think about this legacy. My mother didn't do it, but she was different from the other girls. She's working her way through girls' Catholic school, cleaning toilets, doing whatever, because they were poor and her mother stood in bread lines. And the priest made her kneel down in front of the crucifix every day with her arms outstretched for 30 minutes to get her to confess. And wow. she, didn't, she didn't do it. And so finally the priest came to the house and said to her mother, Edna won't confess and uh, she needs to. And my grandmother, God love her with an eighth grade education said, Edna is an honest child. If she said she didn't do it, she didn't do it. So my grandmother did not throw my mother under the bus and my mother then looked at the priest who said to her, you are now excommunicated. You can never come home to the faith again. And mom said, great. If this is religion, I don't want any part of it. Yes. Now, who, Good who, for does, her. who does that in 1935? Oh right? my, this gives me some insight into you too. Well, that's true, isn't it? Isn't it true? Yeah, it, it's true. <laughs> oh, that's an amazing story. Well, wow, your mom. That is so cool. That really yeah. is. Yeah. And so, you know, on Sundays, my dad would go to church, to the Episcopal church where I played the organ. And on Sundays, he'd, he'd go there and, and she, my mother would say, you go to your church, I'm going to mine. And she'd go out into the woods. Mm, I love it. That's yeah. my church. That's my right. church. I love going to all sorts of churches. I mean, I... I love to experience all different religions, but really my home church is the wild. Yes. And here's the thing. Every single religion is based on the great spiritual truths of all times, every one of them. And uh, it's just when, you know, when they do the guru thing and get into controlling you or like the Catholic church has done for years, give us the money. We'll pray for you and keep you out of hell, which they invented because frankly, did you ever see that movie, What Dreams May Come, way back? Yeah, I, I do. I did. I just yeah. can't recall the exact. Well, it was like this. Uh, these Robin Williams was in it in a dramatic role. Oh, and, and it had a lot of, uh, he went to all sorts of amazing places in heaven, right? That's right. He went, yeah. but he went down to hell to fetch his wife, who was, the children had been killed uh, in a car accident. And so his wife went down to hell. And I think that that is a depiction, absolutely, of a, of a place in the morphogenic field where there is kind of uh, endless darkness, endless grief, endless suffering. That's not really a place other than in the collective unconscious. And we go there when we are hopeless and helpless and can't seem to get out of our own way. Uh, but it's the job of each of us to transform our individual darkness into light. 
Mm-hmm. And there's no question that I had a leg up on that uh, because of a mother who said, if this is religion, I'm not buying it. You know, mm-hmm. last time I heard God is love. So I don't understand this kneeling in front of the crucifix and, until I confess. And by the way, I just learned this. The office of the Inquisition still exists in Lima, Peru, run by the Dominicans. Hmm. Yeah. Now these dudes, you know, they killed 9 million women. It's but sort it of the, still exists currently. They, we still have an office of the inquisition. Hello. Wow. Yeah. And I learned that when I was in Chile working with Alberto de Lodo, uh, who wrote one spirit medicine Yes, I, and, uh, I you know, a wonderful man. And he said, when the conquistadors came to South America Uh, The Mayans went to greet them. Uh, This was a a great story. They handed the Mayan leader the Bible, and he said, what's this? And And the Spaniard said, it's the word of God. So the Mayan leader holds it up to his ear and says, I don't hear anything. And they said, so when did God last talk to you? And they said, 2,000 years ago. (laughs) <laughs> and the guy goes, well, God talked to me this morning. And then, you know, then throws the book down, you know, just throws it down. Like, what kind of God is this? What kind of God is this? So, so I think that's the question we're all asking. What kind of God are you actually worshiping and communing with? And for, as women, we know, do you remember that book way back, Susan Griffin, it was called Of Woman and Nature, The Roaring Inside Her. Yes, I read, I, my mom had that book. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yep. yes. And here's the thing. So we've got women like you who had mothers like me. Mm-hmm. And so now that's how consciousness changes. It's slow. It's slow. You know, the, um, the, the biblical story of Moses freeing the Hebrews from the Pharaoh's rule in Egypt, and they wandered in the desert for 40 years, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Dr. Dorothy Cohen, with whom I worked for years, said that is just a symbolic number. 40 years is two generations. So generation is about 20 years. And she said, really, from Egypt to the Sinai was not a trip that would have taken you 40 years, possibly 30 days. It is symbolic of how long it takes for people to get a new consciousness into their tribe. And in this case, the the same thing with when the Berlin Berlin Wall fell and the East Germans came over to West Germany, it takes two generations for the slave mentality to get out of the consciousness of the families. It takes about two generations. That's actually shorter than what I would think. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what we're, that's what we're seeing now is that, you know, your mother had a certain take. She had the book. So we had the, and these weren't even early feminists. I mean, the early, early feminists were, were the suffragettes who said, wait a minute, the freed black slaves after the civil war had more rights than women. They had more rights than women. And so that's how the the feminist movement started. And then that took a while because the Civil War ended, what, in 1865? 
And then we didn't get the right to vote till 1920. And that right to vote was from one vote, one vote, where a guy's mother said to him, vote for suffrage, please. And at the last minute, he changed his vote. You know, so here we are. And now we're building momentum. There's a thing called a log linear curve. And you've all seen this, where time's going along and time is on the bottom part of the graph. And then the effect is on the longitudinal thing. And you go along, you go along, you go along, boom, you reach critical mass. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then the curve goes way up. That's where we are right now is uh, this exponential growth. That's what we're in with consciousness right now. I totally can, I feel it. I can feel it. I've been saying that to people for quite some time. And I think, and people say it to me often. And I've noticed that empaths and light bodies, light bodies are, and people who are working with, working with their light and letting go of the darkness, we're attracting each other. And it's not, now we even have the internet, you know, and it's not, it's like, even on my, you know, in, on my Facebook page or on the Good with Teresa G's Instagram, people are messaging me all the time. And I'm just like, oh, wow, you are definitely a soul sister, a soul brother. <laughs> yeah, yeah. because <laughs> really, that's really cool. No, that's what's happening. It's like you finally identify with the tribe and you finally start speaking up about the things you've always believed. And as each of us does that, like I've done it, you know, with the hyper intellectual from Washington, D.C., right? Mm-hmm. As I just raise my hands in victory and say, yeah, I loved that movie that you think is so sappy. Yeah. Because you don't want to feel, but I do. And as each of us has the courage to do it and embrace it with ebullient joy and love for them, including them, right? Then everything changes because you had the courage to speak up. I mean, I've been speaking up about what people didn't want to hear for a very long time, for decades. Finally, I feel like, you know, my work was scaling an unmarked peak in the dark without a headlamp with a pickaxe. Now we've got my daughter's generation and you coming along, putting in uh, some shrubbery and landscape lighting. But, you know, each time you do it, it makes it easier for the next person. And that's why we're in this exponential growth where people are just waking up all over the place. And guess who's going to be the last to know the freaking mainstream media. Yeah, they, they will because they're on, they're just have blind, you know, they have blinders on. They're going to working in their tunnel. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you work in, and here's the other thing. Now, this was cool. Lee Carroll came to Portland, Maine, uh, who channels Cryon, and he told us that he works with five different generals at the Pentagon who are light workers. Oh, wow. Wow. Right? right? He has spoken, Lee Carroll has channeled Cryon at the United Nations eight times. Wow. So yeah, that is, things, that's good news. Isn't you know? You'll, you're never going to hear that. You will never hear that in the New York Times. Like, you know, uh, they did an article about Louise Hay way, 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 way back, right? But they don't touch the kind of thing we're talking about. They don't touch it. It's too light. It would, it, you know what it reminds me of? My friend, uh, Evie McDonald, years ago, was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Mm-hmm. Her story was very well documented this way back in the 80s. 
And she would, she just wanted to experience unconditional love for one part of her body just once. She knew she was dying. ALS is no known cause, no known cure, and you're generally dead in two to four years. So she describes herself as a bowl of jello in a wheelchair, and she goes over to the mirror every day, and she started with her eyebrows. And every day she'd just start to love one part of her and then another part and another part. And her symptoms started to go away. And eventually her ALS went away. And so of course she went I have never heard that story. Oh, well, you see, this is why I've got tribal knowledge. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I've been around for a while. So anyhow, Uh she and her colleagues at the New Roadmap Foundation then fund by themselves to not have any bias. They fund a four-university hospital study on ALS, and they choose that because there's no known cause and no known cure, and they want to find out, are there psychological factors, in other words, mind-body-spirit factors, that can influence the course of the disease? And they found out that, indeed, if you were not depressed and if you, think, if, if you thought your life had meaning, then those people were twice as likely to still be alive at the end of the study. Now... Before the study started, they discussed this, this study, and they, they had it torn apart statistically before they began, because you and I both know that when you do a study that flies in the face of what we think is true, then what, what happens in science is they always say, well, the study design was flawed. Mm-hmm. So what they did was made sure that the study design was perfect before they even started, and they were told by the head of the Journal of the American Medical Association, that theirs would be the lead article in that that issue of JAMA. And then the study was published, and it flew in the face of everything doctors are told is true. And the head of the editorial board said, we can't publish this because it flies in the face of what we know to be true. And so the article was the lead article in the January 1994 edition of Archives of Neurology. And the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, they do not review new studies in the Archives of Neurology. They review the New England Journal of Medicine. They review JAMA. So the article never really saw the light of day. And then from that point on, Evie went on to talk at medical meetings And as a result of her research, neurologists from all over the world were then starting to see things that they hadn't seen before because they didn't have the eyes to see. Andy Weil used to talk about uh, going out to look for morels, a type of mushroom. Yes, we we hunt them every every spring. Yes, every year. If you don't know what they look like, you can't see them. So you have to go with someone who knows what they look like, and then you're in the morphogenic field of a morel, and you see them everywhere. But until you're with someone who sees them, they are invisible to you. And that is what is invisible to most people, is the so-called spontaneous remission, the mind-body-spirit connection that can make a disease just go away. Mm-hmm. That's where our magic comes in. Our magic comes in, and there's study after study. I remember reading the Journal of Reproductive Medicine where they gave an incredible account of a woman's near-death experience on the operating table. It was in the journal. 
but it gets disappeared because it doesn't follow the narrative. So what happens is when you're at a cocktail party or I'm at a cocktail party and we start talking about the things that nobody can seem to see, then you're for centuries have been told you're crazy. This doesn't exist, but not anymore. Now it's becoming so you know, more common because research and data is supporting these things that we've known. And it sounds like a lot of the research was there years and years ago, but once again, it was not allowed to come to the surface. Yeah, it wasn't time. Mm -hmm. It wasn't time. And it's like what uh, Lee Carroll says about technology, that we have technology. And Stephen Greer has talked about this with the Disclosure Project. Uh, Stephen Greer said that the government has known about UFOs and all of that forever, but they have been hiding it in plain sight by making everyone who talks about UFOs and aliens seem like a crazy person with a tinfoil hat, so you don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. But he said the whole reason that we did that and the government has done the disclosure is that we have the technology for free energy on the entire planet, but the military-industrial complex does not want you to know that because oil and gas, you got to keep people um, enslaved to uh, this kind of power to keep the war machine going because that's a lot of money for darkness. And he said also, though, it hasn't been time to release this because consciousness had to get to the point where we wouldn't weaponize it. Mm -hmm. yeah, so isn't that interesting? So That's you begin really to realize that even though, look at Nikola Tesla, he had the technology for free energy long ago, but we weren't ready for it yet because we would have weaponized it. So That's we're, true. yeah, yeah. So yeah. now we're, now we're in the, now we're in a different time. But what I love about Stephen Greer's work is he's talking about the forces of darkness that are now making people afraid of aliens so that to keep it going, they can unite the planet by having a war of the worlds where the aliens come down and attack. But that isn't how it is at all. And so right. Steve Greer has the most wonderful disclosure project stuff where he just goes out with people and they call in the uh, UFOs and the ETs the good ones. They call them in and then they interact with them. So we have to mainly, whether it's medicine, whether it's space, whether it's whatever, we need to raise our vibration and go into the higher vibes of light and goodness. Uh, so what I, one of the things I notice with women and everybody actually is that they can stay in the higher vibes of light at a yoga class or listening to the two of us talk or whatever. But when they go in for their annual physical or a mammogram, then they, they're instantly in the darkness because they somehow think that the body isn't part of this. Well, my doctor told me, this is the biggest, and I love that we have a platform to talk about this, this is the biggest hypnotic trance that anyone is in that I've ever seen. That somehow uh, what a blood test tells you or an x-ray tells you or an MRI or whatever can override your own sense of how you are. Andrew Weil said it is the most awful part of medicine that they can undermine your sense of how you are. Mm. And so medicine is based on uh, obsolete Newtonian physics 
And it's good for many things, particularly accidents and orthopedic surgery where you need a new hip or a new knee. But in terms of uh, the other stuff, you know, the average 65-year-old is on six prescription drugs. It's unbelievable. Oh, like, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. And what about the average mom? I mean, I don't even know the statistics, but there is so many mommies on antidepressants. It's just like given across the board. That's how... Uh, you know, I've, I've been in large groups with a lot of moms that just had babies and a lot of them are suffering and a lot of them don't want to go on antidepressants. Uh, but that's the first option that they're given and they're pushed, you know, they're pushed, the antidepressants are pushed. I was just blown away when I was in postpartum and meeting all these moms that had just started antidepressants. Oh, it's just it. Okay. So my good friend is Dr. Kelly Brogan, who wrote a book called A Mind of Your Own. I love her book. Yeah, right. Her book. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and so Kelly had her radicalization was childbirth. You know, so she used to commit people to Bellevue. She said she was the person who most believed in antidepressant medication. She doled it out like M&Ms, like all other yeah. psychiatrists until she realized, wait a minute, this stops a healing process within us and it will sort of static your personal growth. And then she found, of course, that these are the most addictive drugs there are because when you start to wean yourself off them, you get all the original symptoms back and then you're told, oh, you see, you can never come off these. (laughs) You need these for life. And if you looked at the number of studies that these were based on, you know, and before giving them out wholesale to whole populations, it was like nobody. I, I mean, I remember when Prozac first came out and I prescribed it for somebody who was a little depressed. She comes back and she goes, you know what? Um, I look out at my car and I see that the tire is flat. But I don't, but I don't care. Shouldn't you care? <laughs> yes, I remember you saying that somewhere. Maybe it was the interview with Kelly, but oh yeah. my gosh. And I totally relate to that because I was put on antidepressants before I had uh, my baby as a, as a teenager. And what I noticed was coming out of them when I finally stopped them was that all of a sudden that I had basically been numbing my intuition. Yes, that's what it does. I mean, yes. think about think about a massive campaign to suck out people's power and people's ability to think for themselves and to act for themselves. You couldn't do a better job. I mean, where you talk women into thinking that their minds and their bodies and their spirits are flawed and they require constant monitoring lest you die. I mean, this is where, where I see women have been sheep for a long time, systematically, systematically. And so I don't blame them, but I do notice, and I don't know if you, you notice, because here's, here's the thing. If someone is really addicted to being numb and they really want to be numb, then you and I coming in as light is very irritating to them. And I'd like to get that point across to your Mm -hmm. listeners is that we think, oh, they don't like me. That's not it. Your light is just irritating to them. (laughs) And it's important to just understand that you and I can be very irritating to someone who's (laughs) committed to darkness. They're committed to their path of darkness. And then you, you know, so I, I no longer try to get people to like me. 
who don't. I mean, for years, think about it. All the work that I did with uh, trying to give women the information they needed on circumcision. Let's talk about an unpopular stance. Circumcision. Mm-hmm. My two biggies, circumcision and vaccines. Yeah, I was going to say, those are your two biggies. And I have to say, you know, it takes a lot of guts in this world to talk about those topics. It really oh does. God. Well, it does. And that's why, you know, having a mother who told a priest where to put it in 1935, you know, has, has given me the starch. You know, it's given me yes. the bone marrow conviction uh, to, to do it. And also, you know, in my family, then my brother was born and wouldn't eat. And no one knows why there was no antibiotics given to my mother during that pregnancy. So he was hospitalized. So this is the next kid. And a nurse in the middle of the night said to my mother, if I were you, I would take him out of here. The doctors don't know what's going on. And my mother and dad, despite my dad's brother and sister, were medical doctors. And my dad was a dentist who they made fun of. They signed my brother out against medical advice, something you could no longer do, by the way, because they would have reported my parents to protective services. Right. They would have taken him away. They they would have taken him away. And my dad obviously knew how to pass a nasogastric tube because he'd been, uh, you know, doing a lot of oral surgery and worked in a mass unit during World War II. So they put down an NG tube, fed my brother every hour on the hour for nearly a year until they found a female physician at uh, Women's Medical, which no longer exists. And she did pediatric endoscopy, put down a light and said, his esophagus is so eroded that that tube is, is going to perforate his esophagus. Let's take it out and see what happens. And she did and fed him by what's called clysis, big boluses of fluid in his quadriceps. And within two days, he got hungry and started to eat. We never knew what was wrong with him. At one year old, he weighed 10 pounds. My mother was told that he was um, mentally retarded. I'm going to use that word. I know we can no longer use that word. I know the word is developmentally delayed, like it's coming down the pike sometime soon. It is not. Uh, So they told my mother he was mentally defective, and she said she knew that he wasn't, that he was normal. And he's alive now, and, and, uh, you know, he's got a little bit of uh, immune problems with positive rheumatoid factor, but he's a perfectly normal, wonderful person in his 50s. When I went to med school to interview at the University of Buffalo, the doctor who interviewed me had been his attending physician, and he thought that... Yeah, wasn't it? Uh-oh. Don't you love the way God works? Yes. I mean, of all the people. And he said, oh, you're, you're a Northrop from Ellicottville, New York. I said, yes, I am. You know, I could tell he wanted to ask about my brother. And I, and I said to him, oh, he is fine. And, the, you know, the uh, subtitle of that one was, no thanks to you. Yeah, right. Oh, no my- so before I even went to med school, I knew about the limitations of the profession. And I knew my brother wouldn't be alive if my parents had just believed the doctors. Then I'm interviewing for med school. I'm at Yale. Uh, I've driven there. And my dad ends up in the intensive care unit uh, at Buffalo. He calls my mother three days later. He had chest pain. He says, Edna, come and get me. They don't know what's going on. And his IV had infiltrated. So he had a fever from that. And she takes him out of the hospital. The nurses are furious. He walks out with his chest lead still stuck to him. And when I come home from Yale Med School, 
he's sitting up in a chair, fluid, two-thirds of the way up in his lung fields, and he got better at home. And he was right. They didn't know what was going on with him. He had pericarditis, infectious pericarditis. They misdiagnosed him as a heart attack. So those were my two big (laughs) seminal experiences about the failure of modern medicine. So I actually have more faith in the human body's ability to get well many times than I do in the medical profession because I know the limitations. Then I went, you know, and became fully weaponized in my ability to know these things by becoming board certified in a specialty. And yes, it's wonderful when it's wonderful, but don't give all your faith to them. That's all. That's all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And be awake and listen to your intuition, you know, listen to what, is, what your spirit is telling you. Cause often it will whisper and whisper and whisper to you. And, you know, it's always the really tough moment when it has to slam you against the wall. Oh and you're my like, God. Oh, oh, I, I've oh. got it this time. <laughs> isn't, isn't the, oh man, that is so the truth. I have a fun, fun dialogue going with one of my friends who was a, a doc at the uh, Kaiser Permanente group in Denver, Colorado for years, for years. And she's just, uh, you know, she totally, totally, totally gets it about medicine. And she said, I just couldn't be in the system anymore. I couldn't do it because I would see what was going on with the body and what was going on with the mind. And what needs to happen is people need to understand their relationship with their bodies is the longest, most intimate relationship they'll ever have. And so they really need to exchange phone numbers. And, and like what she, what she says is you have to, uh, when, when you're getting a symptom or a tumor or whatever, it is a sign that your voice mailbox is full. And you need to listen to it. <laughs> mm, that's so true, though. Isn't, that's so true. Isn't and it? Someday I'll have to tell my listeners my story about rewiring my brain for complete health and totally healing myself from some really hard uh, illnesses and f- constant physical pain. And that's for another day. But I want to just say that it's amazing to talk to you, um, Dr. Northrup, and have this conversation about how important it is for you to listen to your, your, your spirit, listen to your intuition with medicine, with your body, with everything. Um, and one thing that I always ask everyone, so I have to ask you is what's something you do every day that helps you to be the very best you? What is something I do every day? These days, it's optimal hydration. I've learned a lot about optimal hydration through a wonderful book called Quench by Gina Bria. And I found that there is water has a solid liquid and gas state, but it also has a fourth state, which is a gel state, which is what you find in cucumbers and romaine lettuce and watermelon. And so I've learned that we can stay optimally hydrated by adding things to water, like electrolytes, like Himalayan sea salt, a pinch of that in my water. And so every day I begin my day with a, uh, you know, about 14 ounces of warmish water with a little Himalayan sea salt put in there. Because I realize that this thing about drink eight glasses of water a day is just like peeing in a rock on a rock. All you do is pee all day. If you're really hydrated and your fascia which is a secondary nervous system, is hydrated, then the whole body functions more optimally. 
So that's what I do currently. That's one of the things. Well, that's what I will be doing tomorrow morning. Anyone else going to join me? We're at 14 ounces of warm water with a pinch of Himalayan sea salt. Yes. Or Celtic yes. sea salt also works. Yes. Okay. Perfect. Okay. And I Good. just want to once again, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for creating the ripples of awakening and health for so many of us on this planet. It is my pleasure. Thank you. I'm Teresa Gabrielle, and you've been listening to The Good with Teresa G. You can follow The Good with Teresa G on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you haven't yet, go to the Apple Podcast and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation. Thank you for listening.